Let's go ahead and turn to the Word. Father, we thank you this morning for the Scriptures. We thank you for what we've been reading in Psalm 119. The uh, truth that your Word is forever settled in heaven. It will not go away. It, it will not pass away from us. It is established because you have said it. It bears your authority. It acts with your power. And so this morning, Lord, as we come to the scriptures, we ask that you would encourage us as we consider Joseph and his faith in you. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that believe all that you have said. And in your holy name we pray. Amen. Roy, can I ask you to bring the number one slider down just a quarter inch? Maybe I'm just ringing a little bit here. Uh, this morning we're continuing in Hebrews 11. Uh, we're looking at these historical case studies of these real people who trusted in God. They're, they're not spiritual giants. They are people like us. But if, if, if you didn't catch from last week with Jacob that these are not spiritual giants then I encourage you to read Jacob's story. He was anything but a, a hero of character. He is proof of the grace of God. When we come to Joseph. There's one mention of Joseph made in Hebrews 11. It's verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. It's a fairly short statement, kind of like the, the short statement made with Jacob himself. <coughs> But as I've continued to point out, we can't understand the significance of what Hebrews says about Joseph until we get a sense of what Scripture says about Joseph. Let me invite you to turn back to Genesis 50. Let me take a few minutes and, and, and summarize Joseph's life for you. Now, it's a, it's a long story. It begins in chapter 37. We're going to end up in chapter 50 where you are right now. Um, we first meet Joseph uh, after his birth in Genesis 37. He's 17 years old. He is his father's favorite, probably because Rachel, his mother, was the, the woman that Jacob actually truly loved, and Joseph was her firstborn son. Uh, we're told in chapter 37 that Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers back to his father, and uh, they hated him for that Jacob loved him so much that he had him dressed in in fine clothes. His brothers hated him for that as well. And then Joseph has a a pair of dreams that indicate that his family are going to one day bow down to him. And so all of that happens in the first 11 or 12 verses of Genesis 37 to establish the relationship between Jacob and Joseph and also the antagonism and the hatred that Joseph's brothers had for him. Later in 37, chapter 37, uh, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers who have the flock in pasture land three days to the north. Joseph gets there, they see him coming, they plot, they plan, they ultimately sell him to some Midianite traders who are heading south. Those Midianite traders take Joseph to Egypt where he is sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh, so he was kind of like the head of the secret service. God gave Joseph 
tremendous success as a slave in Potiphar's house. And before too long, Potiphar had given the, the, uh, the oversight of everything with his home over to Joseph. Potiphar's wife, uh, for reasons we're not told other than that Joseph was a handsome man, became attracted to him, and she began trying to seduce him. And that took place over a, a number of episodes. She finally became so desperate that she grabbed onto his robe and, and to save himself, in a sense, he slipped out of his robe and ran out into the courtyard. Well, that's a, a shocking thing to see the, the overseer of the house appear suddenly with a woman screaming in the house, and she accuses him of trying to rape her. So Potiphar had him thrown into prison. Joseph languished in prison for a time, but God gave him success there as well, and pretty soon he was virtually running that place, and there were no decisions that were made that were made apart from Joseph there. The time came when two servants that Pharaoh had decided he disliked, his cupbearer and his baker, uh, who were in prison, both had terrible dreams. Joseph interpreted the dreams. The baker's dream was that in three days he was going to be executed. The cupbearer's dream was, uh, the interpretation was that in three days he was going to be released from prison and restored back to service to Pharaoh. And Joseph said, when that happens, would you tell Pharaoh about me that I'm here unjustly? The cupbearer promised to do that, but of course he promptly forgot. Two years later then, Pharaoh has uh, uh, some bad dreams himself. His wise man can't interpret those dreams. They can't give any kind of correct meaning for them. But the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Joseph is brought out of prison. He's brought before Pharaoh. He correctly interprets the dreams. And the, the dreams Pharaoh had said that Egypt was going to have seven absolutely phenomenal harvests. Not, not a little bit better, but incredibly good followed by seven years of terrible famine and so joseph also advised pharaoh on what to do pharaoh was so impressed impressed by this that he promotes joseph to the number two place in egypt joseph becomes the number two ruler in the land of egypt he uh, over the next seven years he builds storage facilities and the scripture says that so much grain ended up being stored up that they couldn't count it uh, pharaoh also gave joseph a wife asenath who was the daughter of an egyptian priest uh, who served in the city of on or heliopolis is uh, another name for that city as you read in that that particular text, you might think that the priest was the priest of a god called On. It was actually a priest in the city of On. Uh, during those abundant years, she and Joseph had two sons, Manasseh, which means cause to forget, and Ephraim, which means fruitfulness. What's interesting is that both of these names are Hebrew names. They're not Egyptian names. They're Hebrew names. The famine began just as Joseph said it would after seven good years of harvest, and the entire region uh, of the, the northern, northern Africa and the eastern Mediterranean area suffers. But there's grain in Egypt. And Joseph increases Pharaoh's wealth by selling grain, not only to Egyptians, but to people from other countries. Because of the famine, uh, the people in Canaan, which included Jacob and his family, also faced starvation. So Jacob sent 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy grain and bring it back. He kept Benjamin at home. 
the brothers came before Joseph. Joseph, it says, disguised himself. They haven't seen him for 20 years. He was 17 years old when they saw him, stripped almost naked. And now they see him uh, more than 20 years later. But he has to disguise himself, which tells me not so much that he looked so much like them that he needed to put on makeup or a mask, but that he had continued to dress as a Hebrew. He had not gone Egyptian. He gave his boys Hebrew names. He, he himself is identifiable as a Hebrew. But he disguises himself so that they would not know him. He has all ten thrown in jail for three days. Then he releases them. He keeps one in jail, Simeon. He allows the nine to go back to Canaan and promises to release Simeon when they come back with his young brother, Benjamin. They go back to Canaan. They tell Jacob what had happened. And Jacob said, you're not taking Benjamin. I've now lost two sons. I'm not going to lose any more. But the famine continued, and it got so bad that eventually there was no choice. So Jacob sends his, his, the nine sons back to Egypt with Benjamin and, and seems to have little hope of ever seeing him again. When they return to Egypt, Joseph keeps his word. He releases Simeon. He sells them the grain that they wanted. But he arranged for Benjamin to be falsely accused of stealing a silver cup that belonged to Joseph. He was brought back, brought before Joseph, and Joseph decided that as punishment, he would keep Benjamin as a slave, and the others could go home. And at that point, Judah steps up and offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. He said, it says, in essence, you, you can't do this to our father. He's already lost one son. He's lost our mother. This would destroy him. I offer myself as a substitute. I hope you're thinking now of the Lion of Judah who offered himself as a substitute for us. Joseph breaks down at this. He sees the love from his brothers for one of their own that was never shown him. He breaks down. He actually kicks everybody out and then he identifies himself to his brother's He sends them home. They bring back Jacob and the entire family to Egypt. They become shepherds in Goshen, which is an area on the eastern or the western side of the Nile Delta. If you look even now at a at a map of Egypt, it's largely brown with a, a green strip where the Nile is, and it the Nile runs north, and as it runs north toward the Mediterranean Sea, you see it begin to fan out. Goshen is over on the left side of that fan. Joseph when his father Jacob died 17 years later, Joseph had to ask for permission to leave Egypt to bury his father in Canaan. Joseph was the number two ruler in Egypt, but he was the slave, the property of the number one ruler. Joseph had incredible wealth, luxury, privilege. He rode in one of Pharaoh's chariots with a man crying out, bow down as he went, but Joseph was a slave. All of his power, all of his privilege ultimately meant nothing. They returned from burying Jacob and Joseph's brothers suddenly become terrified. Now that their father is dead, what will Joseph do to them for selling him as a slave so many years before? And Joseph reassures them. He says, 
in Genesis chapter 50. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Beginning in verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? Am I God to stand in judgment over you on this? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let me just pause for a second. As, as Christians, as those who have been forgiven, as those who call upon the name of the Lord and who know the holiness of God and who know the righteousness of God and the word of God, who know our own failings and our own sins, we can become afraid of our sins. We can, we can start thinking, uh, maybe, maybe I've crossed the line, maybe I don't know enough, maybe I don't pray enough, maybe uh, I'm not faithful enough, maybe I don't share the gospel enough, maybe I'm, maybe I'm falling short in some way, maybe I have a reason to be terrified. And what we have with Joseph as a picture of Christ is saying, do not be afraid to those who are guilty. Not to those who have been falsely accused, but those who had reason to be afraid. He says, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. He comforted them. He spoke kindly to them. It reminds me of the statement that is made in Romans chapter 5, where Paul is describing the love of God. He says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the past. If you're in Christ, if you've been born again, that, that's that moment describing your past. And, and I know what some of your minds will do. You'll say, but that was past. That was yesterday. He died for me then. What about my failures that go on? And so Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If I can paraphrase that, and it's probably not a great paraphrase, for that I apologize. What Paul is saying is, look, if God gave his son to die for you when you were a sinner, won't he save you now that you're his child? And so... With Joseph, I say, don't be afraid. God provides. God cares. God will comfort you. He will speak kindly to you. And then we see in verse 22, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. 
Exodus 16 tells us that when they left, Moses took Joseph's body with him. Joshua chapter 24 tells us that when Joshua died and was buried, they also buried Joseph's body in Shechem in the grave with his father Jacob. That, that's, that's what we see there in, in Hebrews about Joseph. It's very, very quick. I, I understand that. That took me about 13 minutes. I understand that's very fast. There's, there's weeks of sermons in there. That's very quick. But as we think about what it says in Hebrews, if you want to turn to Hebrews 11, although it's, it's such a short verse, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. What was it about Joseph's faith that was so remarkable? But remember, we're, we're looking at case studies of the faith of real people living real lives in the book of Hebrews. And those case studies are there for our encouragement. That, that we would understand faith better, that we would understand God better, that we would know ourselves a little bit better and what it means to be saved, what it means to be in a relationship with the, the Creator, the Redeemer. What was remarkable about Joseph's faith? It's that his faith had nothing to do with his life. It's that Joseph's faith had nothing to do with his circumstances. It's that Joseph's faith was not aimed at his next step or his next ten steps, Joseph's faith was reaching out centuries. God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. God said to Abraham, A land. Joseph knew what the land was. Abraham didn't know it was Egypt, but Joseph knew that it was Egypt. The Lord also said to Abraham, I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. God says, your people are going to be in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. I will deliver them, and they will come out with possessions. Joseph says, I know the land. It's the land of Egypt, and I know the time. It's about 350 or 360 years from now. Joseph's faith is not looking at today or next week or next month or next year. It's looking hundreds of years in the future. He has an incredibly long view of what God is going to do. And I think Joseph's faith extends into eternity. He doesn't have his eyes on the next moment. What's remarkable to me about this is that Canaan couldn't have held too many happy memories for Joseph. He was raised in his father's house, but his mother was dead. He was his father's favorite. He had some fine clothes, and that that was probably kind of nice, but there was constant antagonism from his older brothers. He's entrusted by his father with a message to go to his older brothers, which also means that his father wouldn't let him go with the older brothers. We're going to keep you at home. And and Jacob, out out of his love, whether it was right or wrong, Jacob, out of his love, kept Joseph separated from his brothers and set him up for this. And when he goes up faithfully... And in fact, when you read the story, he goes to the place where he thought they, thought they were and they're not there. He has to go find them and he goes and finds them. He's that faithful. And then they grab him and they tie him up. And the first part of their discussion is let's kill him. 
And it's because of Reuben, the oldest, that Joseph is not immediately killed. He's thrown into a pit while they decide what they're going to do. Reuben is off somewhere. We don't know where. And some traders are coming by, and the other brothers haul Joseph out of the pit, and they they sell him to the traders for, I think, 20, 20 shekels, just a handful of money. Reuben comes back, and he says, where is he? And they said, we sold him. And Reuben says, what are we going to do? They take Joseph's coat. They kill a goat. They rub his coat in the blood. They take the coat back to Jacob, and they say he's dead, killed by a wild animal eaten so thoroughly that there is nothing left except his blood on this cloak. Canaan can't have been a happy memory for Joseph. Now, Egypt starts out bad, but God gave him success in Potiphar's house. God gave him success in the prison. God certainly gave him success with Pharaoh. Joseph was 30 when he met Pharaoh. He died at 110. He spent 80 years as the vice president of Egypt. He spent 80 years with luxury and wealth and power, and privilege, and a wife, and sons. And more sons than Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph's eyes are out in front. Joseph's eyes are on Canaan. And he says, I'm a slave too. And the fact that I died doesn't make me not a slave. And when God rescues you, rescue me. He longs for Canaan. Joseph's faith was not on what God had done for him in Egypt. It was on what God had promised to do for them in the land of Israel. And he wanted to be part of that blessing. Why is Joseph's faith important for you and I? I haven't been advancing this, but you've been tracking, I'm sure. Why is this so important for you and me today? Well, it's because the letter of Hebrews is written in part to warn us against apostasy. To warn us against faithlessness. Who, who in, the, in the Bible that you know of had, had more of a reason to say, you know something, this is not working for me, than Joseph? He's faithful to his father and, and to the Lord. He's sold as a slave. He's faithful to Potter. Potiphar, he's wrongfully accused. He's faithful in the prison, and he's forgotten there. He's faithful to Pharaoh, and when his dad dies, he has to ask permission to leave. Joseph not only didn't lose his faith, Joseph kept his faith, and it it built. It grew. There is no risk of apostasy with him because of the nature of his faith. 22 years ago, a a man named Joshua Harris published a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was 23 years old at the time. The book sold sold well over a million copies. That same year, he became a pastoral intern at a very large church in Maryland. He was groomed by the pastor to take over, and at the age of 30, he became the senior pastor with no seminary background. After 11 years, the death of his mother... And who knows what else. He resigned from that position in order to go to seminary, as he put it, to broaden his spiritual understanding. He never graduated from seminary. He quit 
and formed a business consulting firm in Vancouver, Canada. A week or two ago, he announced that he and his wife were divorcing. And then his next announcement was that he was renouncing Christ. Repudiating Christianity. His quote is, By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. What happened? He was never a believer. He was raised in a Christian home. He was taught the right things. He was taught to say the right things. He wrote a book that was immensely popular, and because of the popularity of his book, he was put in a position where he could benefit the church. Boy, Josh Harris is the pastor of that church. He writes bestsellers. I'm going to that church. He was affirmed because he was clever and successful and charismatic and outgoing, and he produced results, but his faith was false. It couldn't endure because it didn't exist. And I think the reason he rose so fast, so high, was because so many in the modern church are so incredibly short-sighted. Some of the most popular books in Christian bookstores are are romantic fiction, which are just a way of escape, and self-help books. If you'll just read this book, your prayer life will be revolutionized. No, it won't. That's why there's always another book on prayer. If you'll read this book, you'll have purpose in your life. No, you won't. That's why next year there will be another book on how to have purpose in your life. You see, what we're called to is is the long haul of faith. We're called to persevere in faith. Jesus took it so so seriously that he says it's, it's the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. In our time, even for people to make a one-year commitment to something is, is almost unthinkable. We're seeking quick answers and easy satisfaction. And the idea of digging in for the long haul just doesn't exist. I think if your faith can't see past tomorrow or next week, you're in trouble. I think if your faith can see into the decades to come and, frankly, into eternity to come, you're on solid ground. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus has gone as a forerunner behind the curtain for us and that we are anchored to him. He is our anchor in the Holy of Holies where he is now praying for us and we are anchored to him. How long is the chain of your faith? Does it just go out a day or two? Or does it reach Jesus? Does it reach heaven? Last week we talked about Jacob. Jacob was a man whose focus was on the moment. It was on what's immediate. How can I have it now? How can I get it quick? How can I do it now? And at the age of 130 when he met Pharaoh, Jacob summarized his life by saying, my life has been short and bitter. Yeah. When the sole exercise of your faith is what's today, what's tomorrow, what's next week, how can I get it, how can I achieve it, how can I have what I want now, now, I want it now, your life will seem short and it will be bitter. We see that in the prosperity movement all the time as people claim healing and claim wealth and claim all kinds of things that never happen. Joseph, on the other hand, 
who suffered far more betrayal than Jacob ever did after spending decades of his life as nothing more than a privileged slave tells the men responsible for that, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So it didn't matter what his brothers meant. It didn't matter what the Midianite traders meant. It didn't matter what Potiphar and his wife meant. It didn't matter what the jailer or the cupbearer or the pharaoh meant. God meant it for good. And Joseph, he put his faith in what God was doing. And said, let me be faithful today. Not successful. Let me be faithful today. He didn't say, let me be freed today. He said, let me be faithful today. He didn't say, let me be healed today. He said, let me be faithful today. He didn't say, let me be prosperous or healthy today. He said, let me be faithful today. You want to pray for Norm? Pray for him for his healing. We have a God who can heal. He can do anything he pleases. But pray for his faithfulness. If you want to pray for Carolyn, pray for her faithfulness. Pray that God would comfort. Pray that she would sense the kindness of the Lord in this. She's she's frightened. She's frightened right now. And you can understand why she's frightened right now. Pray that God would sustain her faith. That after decades of following him, if it's the Lord's purpose to take Norm today or tomorrow or this week, that Carolyn wouldn't say, you know something? I've served God for for decades. He did this to me. Forget him. She's not going to do that, I don't believe, because her faith is out in eternity. Her faith is centered on Christ, not on the moment. Where is your faith aimed? Where is my faith aimed? We have to ask that question. Is your faith so focused on today that you need a microscope to see what it is you want? Or is your faith lifted to heaven so that you need a spiritual telescope to see the aim? If your hopes are settled on today and tomorrow and these in these temporary moments, then you run the risk of having to summarize your life in the years to come as short and bitter. If you follow Joseph's example, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, then you'll be able to say with Joseph at the end of your days, God meant it for good. That's what I pray for each and every one of you. It's what I pray for myself. I read an article this week that talked about two men who had developed a polio vaccine around the time Jonas Salk was working on it. Other people were were working on it too. And they gave themselves the vaccine. And then they, 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 they took a solution of polio virus and they clicked glasses and they drank it having taken the vaccine. They exposed themselves to a far greater concentration of, of the virus than anybody would ever receive in the, in the actual world. 
And the point of the article was to say to me, to say as a preacher, to say as a pastor, to say as you, as you teach and encourage others, don't give somebody else something that you yourself have not taken. So I've had to ask myself this week, where is my faith? Is it out in the future? Is it in Christ? Is it with him in the heavenly places behind the curtain where he has gone as a forerunner? Or is it just in the next moment? I face these same battles. So as we walk together, let's, let's lift our eyes from the things of today. Let's place our eyes into the heavenly places. Look to the Lord who is enthroned there in the heavens. It's not easy. It takes the, the, the strength and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do that. But at the end of our lives, at the end of our days, we are going to say, God meant it for good. Father, we thank you for your love We thank you for your gentleness and for your kindness to us. We thank you for the example of Joseph. We thank you for the example of all these men, for the example of of Jacob. But Joseph's life, for all the suffering that he endured and all the hardship that he endured is is such a, a story of faith. It's not that he was brilliant. It's not that he was hugely gifted. It's not that he was remarkable. It's that he simply kept his faith in you. And we know that you helped him do that. We ask for your help. We ask, Lord, that when our faith wavers, when our faith is weak, when our faith is uncertain, that you would grasp us all the more tightly. That when we can't cling to you, you would cling to us. And Lord, as the the message of Hebrews as a caution against apostasy and falling away is is a message that needs to be heard, would you give us the wisdom and the kindness and the grace to share that with others? to encourage them in their struggles, to encourage them in their trials, to cling to you. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.